Hello everyone and welcome back to Black in Time. Belated Happy New Year, Happy Easter, Happy Christmas and all of the other holidays in between. I can't believe that it's been almost a year since I released the last episode of this show. A lot can happen in a year and a lot has happened in the past year, including my laptop dying and the loss of all of my podcasting files. Yep, every last one. Okay, not all of them, but all of my Black in Time files at least. Nonetheless, I'm back and ready to continue my mission of promoting Black British history 365 days a year. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy this episode. On January 25th, 1981, over a thousand people attended a meeting at the Moonshot Club in New Cross. They gathered to hear updates from a fact-finding commission set up days earlier by the New Cross Massacre Action Committee. The committee was formed on January 20th, 1981, within days of the New Cross fire, and was chaired by John LaRose. In episode 8, I go into further detail about the New Cross flyer, so do check that out to find out more. The fact-finding commission was essentially a vote of no confidence in response to how the police were failing to investigate the New Cross fire and deliberately misleading the press. Through interviews with survivors and the bereaved, the fact-finding commission compiled its own evidence. From their inquiries, they discounted the following lines of inquiry. A. That a faulty television may have exploded. B. That a spark from a gas fire had ignited a buffet. C. That someone smoking cannabis may have been careless. D. That an abundance of alcohol fueled the fire. And E. That gate crashers who had been turned away returned and caused the fire. At the meeting, there were also speeches by Darkus Howe and representatives from other organisations, such as the BUFP and the Black Panther movement. After the speeches, community organiser Sybil Phoenix led a march to 439 New Cross Road, where many occupied the streets for several hours. The next meeting of the New Cross Massacre Action Committee was held two days later, where it was decided that the Black People's Day of Action would be held on Monday, March 2nd. On January 26, 2020, Joe Martin became the first Black actor to play the Doctor in the long-running TV series Doctor Who. Martin was revealed as the Doctor in that night's episode titled Fugitive of the Jadoon, and her casting came as a surprise to many as the news was not made public prior to the episode's airing. In playing the Doctor, Martin followed the first female incarnation of the Time Lord, played by Jodie Whittaker. For those of you who aren't familiar with Doctor Who, the Doctor is a Time Lord from the planet Gallifrey, travelling through space and time in their time capsule which takes the form of a police box called the TARDIS, 
Due to their alien physiology, when seriously injured, the doctor can regenerate their body, taking on a new appearance and personality. In the episode Fugitive of the Jadoon, Martin appeared disguised as a human tour guide called Ruth Clayton, who lived alongside her husband Lee in 21st century Gloucester to escape the Time Lords. Her character was revealed to be an earlier incarnation of the Doctor that had been erased from the memory of the first Doctor. Martin was well received in her role as the Doctor, with many calls for her to return as the Doctor full-time or even receive a spin-off series in the role. On January 27th, 2018, a one-off collaborative conference organised by a number of black British platforms and organisations took place at Centrala, a multifunctional art space in Birmingham. The groups involved in the organising of the conference were No Fly on the Wall, Sassy Tees, We Are Superwoman and Cultured Lens. Like London, Birmingham is home to a significant Afro-Caribbean community. So for the organisers of the Reimagining Black Britain conference, hosting the conference there was a conscious decision, decentering London as the place of such events and organising. The conference followed a series of events focusing on the theme of reimagining, run by No Fly on the Wall. From 2013 to 2018, No Fly on the Wall brought together and centred the voices of black British women and black women living in the UK. The series on reimagining explored the ways in which the black community could confront and challenge oppression and marginalisation in various areas of day-to-day life. The Reimagining Black Britain conference explored topics such as sustainable entrepreneurship, Afrofuturism and equitable practice in the creative industries. Workshops inspired attendees to move from idea to action and provided them with resources, energy and space to do so. January 28th, 2017 marked the end of the missing chapter Black Chronicles, an exhibition at Hackney Museum. The pop-up exhibition offered a rare glimpse into the lives of people of African, Caribbean and South Asian descent during the Victorian era in Britain. Produced in commercial studios during the 19th century, many of the photos lay hidden in archives unseen for 125 years. The images were part of the exhibition in a box, a project by Autograph ABP, designed to encourage cultural diversity through photography. Autograph ABP was established in the 1980s to promote the work of black photographers. The 30 portraits on display in the Missing Chapter exhibition showed a diverse range of people, from visiting performers, politicians, dignitaries, servicemen and women, royalty and missionaries, to known personalities. They included Samuel Crowther, the first African Anglican Bishop of West Africa, and Katie McCanya, member of the African Choir, a group of men and women from South Africa who toured Britain in the late 19th century. Alongside them were many other images of yet unidentified individuals 
living and working in Britain during the Victorian era. The exhibition highlighted the reality of an important and complex presence of black people in Britain pre-Windrush, something which is often downplayed in traditional accounts of British history. On January 29th, 1900, William Craft, an abolitionist who fled enslavement in the US and played a vital role in the anti-slavery movement, died. Born in enslavement, Craft was separated from his family when his enslaver auctioned them off to different enslavers to pay off a debt. Craft met his wife Ellen, also an enslaved woman, in Macon, Georgia. Desperate to raise a family and live together, free from enslavement, the pair hatched a plan to escape. Ellen disguised herself as a white man travelling for medical treatment, with William posing as her enslaved assistant. Together, on December 21st, 1848, they fled state lines, reaching Philadelphia on Christmas Day, before relocating to join the black community in Boston's Beacon Hill. In 1850, Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act, which forbade inhabitants of the free states from providing a safe haven for those seeking freedom. Fearing kidnap and death, the Crafts fled to England, arriving in Liverpool in December 1850. Upon arrival in England, the pair toured the country and settled in a village in Surrey called Ockham. They later moved to London helping to organise the London Emancipation Society. At the end of the American Civil War, the Crafts moved back to America with their children. Ellen is believed to have died in 1891, with William dying almost a decade later. Just last year, in 2021, a blue heritage plaque was erected at the Crafts' former home in Hammersmith. Among those present at the ceremony were the Crafts' great-great-grandchildren. On January 30th, 1959, St Pancras Town Hall played host to a Caribbean carnival organised by Claudia Jones. In episode four, I talk about the life of Claudia Jones, so do check that out to find out more about her. The Caribbean carnival held on January 30th followed a summer of violence fuelled by anti-immigrant sentiment in places such as Notting Hill and Nottingham. The events in Notting Hill in particular are widely viewed as a pivotal moment in the emergence of organised black British political consciousness. In early 1958, Claudia Jones set up the West Indian Gazette as a political space to highlight black people's struggles for equality in Britain while fostering transatlantic solidarity with other movements. During a meeting at the West Indian Gazette's offices, Jones remarked that something was needed to get the taste of Notting Hill out of our mouths. Notting Hill in this instance being the violence that was ongoing at the time. Someone suggested a carnival and this set the wheels in motion. The decision to hold a carnival was political, with Jones saying that a people's art is the genesis of their freedom. The carnival was held in January to coincide with Trinidadian carnivals, 
with other similar elements reproduced, such as dancing, music, and a Caribbean carnival queen beauty pageant. It was televised for the BBC for 6-5 special, a precursor to Top of the Pops. The carnival ran annually, growing bigger and bigger until 1964 when Jones died suddenly. Organising the Caribbean Carnival in 1959 led to Jones being crowned the mother of carnival. However, it's important to note that the Notting Hill Carnival that we have come to know and love today was actually the brainchild of a community organiser called Roan Lassett. On January 31st, 2011, a new kids cartoon about an all-mouse reggae band debuted on the BBC children's TV channel CBeebies. Rastamouse centres around the titular character and his band, The Easy Crew, who play music at the Nuff Song Studio. When they're not making music, the trio solve active mysteries for the president of Mouseland. Rastamouse first appeared in 2004 in the children's books Rastamouse and the Crucial Plan and Rastamouse de Bagabling. The books were written by Michael D'Souza, a Rastafarian swimming teacher, and Genevieve Webster, an author and illustrator. All of the characters in Rastamouse speak in a Jamaican accent, with Reggie Yates voicing the titular character for the TV series. When it first aired, Rastamouse was the most complained about kids' TV show that year with users of the site Mumsnet expressing outrage at their children knowing and saying words like Rasta. Other complaints accuse the show of lazy stereotyping. Despite this, the show ran for three series spanning over 100 episodes. I'll be talking about the first televised kiss between a black and white person, a history-making feat at the National Theatre, and our favourite thing to watch on a Friday night, you guessed it, The Big Nasty Show. <laughs> <laughs>